Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you can learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. Today you'll learn some common vocabulary terms from Jill and Emily. Jill talks about whole cluster fermentation versus non-whole cluster fermentation. Emily talks about two terms, the concerto grosso, which is a type of composition for an orchestra with a group of soloists, and the fugue, a type of composition from the Baroque era. Good afternoon. It is a good afternoon because it's the sunniest day we've had in four days, which is great. It is, and to boot, we're going to back that up with terminology. Terminology that is often used in classical music. People may say, what the heck does that mean? This sounds beautiful, but I don't know what four of those words mean (laughs) to explain or name Mm -hmm. a piece. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for wine, of course. There are plenty of terms thrown around, um, both professionally and by consumers. And um, a lot of folks wonder what those terms mean. So obviously this has the potential to be like 900 episodes in one. Yeah. So we've chosen a couple favorites as of late. Yep. Let's let's classical first, shall we? Shall we classical first? Let's classical first. I love that. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, We... uh, I wanted to talk about two terms today. Uh, one is called concerto grosso. Concerto grosso, yeah. Concerto grosso. Uh, <laughs> I was practicing. <laughs> yeah, I'm my sure. Italian pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I just say concerto grosso. Uh, <laughs> and then we're going to talk about the fugue as well, which I'm really happy about. <laughs> uh, so. I did just just to rewind. I did receive an email from Emily yesterday that said, "I am so happy to be writing and talking about the fugue. Fugue me all day, Mother Fuger. Hashtag fugue me all day." <laughs> and then there were like there was a quote about fuging and yep. all kind. It was it was oh, there's so many wonderful quotes about fugue because it's such an important tool. For composers. I don't want to start with that, though. We'll start with the Concerto Grosso. Before we do, can we have a glass of wine quick? <laughs> a glass. <laughs> or a quick. S- a s- <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, yeah, sure. Let's, let's start out with, uh, so my term today, uh, we may have time for two, but one is going to be quite leaded in and of itself. So we're going to talk about whole cluster fermentation um, that will encompass probably a few more terms just to make sure uh, that that it's well explained. And I've brought two wines today. They're the same site. They're the same vintage, the same grape varietal. So the only difference is, and they're they're vinified and elaborated in the same vessel, Mm -hmm. old oak in this case. So the only difference 
is one is made without whole cluster fermentation. Okay. And one was made with, I confirmed with the winemaker this morning, virtually 100%. So it's as close to 100% whole cluster as we can get. So why okay. don't we start? I, I'm a big fan of teasing. So let's, uh, yeah, let's start with the non whole cluster fermentation. Yeah, let's do that. And then we can talk while we're drinking it. Although I think you're spitting today. One. <laughs> Spitting and sipping most days. That's it's true. Okay. That's it's true. Okay. That's very true. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. This has a very cranberry color, I would say, when I tip it down. When I look at it like this, it's cherrier to me. Not cherry. Cherry, whatever. Like blood redder than if I look at it through down. Yeah. If I look at it down, it's very cranberry color. It does have a cranberry type mm -hmm. of hue for sure. And it... Um, has uh, some nuances of that, too, on the nose and palate. Um, so tell me about Concerto Grosso. Well, let's just take the word concerto first. Uh, concerto is a piece of music that has one soloist and an ensemble. So violin concerto. We've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. It's going to have the violinist in front of an orchestra, trumpet concerto, trumpeter in front of the orchestra, etc. Concerto Grosso, Grosso meaning big, right? Mm -hmm. Something along those lines. Yep. Uh, is uh, virtually the same thing, very similar. It's a full orchestra. Uh, but rather than there being a so one soloist up on stage, the soloists tend to be peppered throughout the ensemble, and there's uh, a handful of them. So with someone like George... Uh, um, George, not George, Georg Friedrich Handel... Uh, there's two violins, a cello, and a harpsichord who are the soloists. And so you'll hear them kind of break away from the ensemble, as it were, play things along those lines. Uh, some really famous examples of a concerto grosso would be Bach's Brandenburg concertos, which we've talked about <clears throat> as well, and I'm sure we'll talk about many more times. Uh, those are considered kind of a pretty important set of concerto grosso. So, uh, and there's an interplay that needs to take place, right? Between Concerto Grosso, like between the bigger orchestra and sure. these small amounts, these small group of soloists, right? There's like, sure, this, okay. there tends to be, yeah, that's, I'd say it's fair that there tends to be, you know, a, a good deal of call and response or kind of imitation between the two. How I was reading about it was there's the Concertino, which is like the group of soloists that are playing off of the greater. Um, ripieno is that? Yes. The the greater orchestra. Yes. And there's that's where the interplay is. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yes. So the soloists, again, they're always just part of the ensemble, right? They're just sitting in there. They're not standing out on the stage like they otherwise would be. Okay. You know, generally speaking, that was going to be another question I was going to ask. Yeah. They're so just, they're not separated. Yeah. No, okay. they're just chilling. In the orchestra with okay, everybody cool. else, which is another uh, kind of fun thing about it because it's not like, I mean, it is highlighting those players and oftentimes that's why those were written in the first place, you know, with really specific players in mind. Mm -hmm. But uh, but still, it's just like, they're just part of the crew, you know, so and it's usually, you know, it'd be the first chair players okay. or, or whatever. That makes sense. Know. And is it separated into, is uh, Concerto Grosso then separated into two further categories, like the, what is it, the basically the church version and the yeah. chamber portion, or yeah. no? 
Well, they or were is that, long, is, is long that ago. Valid? Okay. Yeah, long ago. All music was, right? Everything was very deliberately separated into uh, secular music and sacred music. Okay. And that went well into the Baroque era where when these kinds of concerti were first written, there were concertos that were written specifically for church services, which were called Sonata de Chiesa. And then there were then there were um, uh, concerti that were specifically written for, you know, not that chamber music. Okay. Sonata D. Uh, I can't remember what the term is, but it's it's chamber is basically what the other word translates to. Let me see. I've got it written down here. Comida. Yep. Yep. Uh, so those things just ended up just not being an issue later, you know. And and plus, like the Sonata de Chiesa had a specific form. I think it went slow, fast, slow, fast. It was typically four movements. Uh, but even then, you'll take someone like Archangelo Corelli, who was the first uh, composer with any kind of fame to write a set of Concerti Grossi. Corelli wrote Sonata de Chiesa and Sonata de Camera. And he even calls them that. You know, you look at like the first set of 12 Concerto Grossos or Concerti Grossi. We're going to be going back and forth between those two all day, so don't get annoyed. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's either Concerto Grossos, Concerti Grossi. We'll, we'll if it's plural, Grossi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so Corelli wrote a bunch. He, the 12 that he wrote, I think maybe eight of them, he calls Sonata de Chiesa. So you would say church sonata. But a lot of those even have more than four movements, right? Even though traditionally speaking, the church sonata was a four-movement work. So you had mentioned that you really wanted to show the world and us. Uh, you wanted to talk about Corelli's um, Concerto Grosso in F. Yeah. His Opus 6, number 2 of 12, mm -hmm. and movement number 4 <laughs> out of 4, the Allegro. Mm -hmm. Right there, there should be a whole show. Mm -hmm. Why the hell are so many numbers? Like, yeah, I know. When you, go to, when you go to look I something know. up, it's like, what opus number is it? Or, you know, well, maybe... we should have that conversation. We will definitely have that conversation. Stay tuned oh, to Scores and Cores, huh? but not now. <laughs> not now. We're so going to stay numbers on. numbers are important, everybody. They're really important. They're we'll really helpful. We'll still have a... We'll talk about <laughs> opus numbers and maybe alongside talking about German wine labels oh. and why they're numbered. Well, of course. That Sexy. Sounds, yes. Sexy. Math. All right. So let's, let's talk about the Concerto Grosso in F. Yeah, let's listen to this... Um, Corelli. Beautiful piece. The interplay between these two, um, the concertino and the ripieno, there's like this interplay, right? That is, it's obviously a very pinnacle part of what a concerto grosso is. Yeah. But it's also very dynamic and it's happening very quick. And, you know, there are other concerto grossos where it happens quite, it's more, it's slower. Mm -hmm. And with wine, there's like texturally how wine hits our palate and what happens when we pay attention. Like, cause you could listen to this. Corelli Opus 6 and go, wow, it's really beautiful and mm -hmm. just end of story. Mm -hmm. But if you're paying attention to it, it's just so alive. And yeah. with wine, it's so... That parallel, I think, between the audible texture and 
what we're considering like palette texture mm-hmm. is really, really quite... I was yesterday just smitten with this episode because I was imagining what happens when I put certain wines on my palate when I'm lucky enough to do so and smelling them and just what happens when I'm paying attention and when I'm giving it its due diligence. So that was very long-winded. I apologize. No. <laughs> but, yeah. So great episode to, to think about um, the interchange between wine and classical music for show. I want to try this whole cluster. Yeah, stuff. so so um, I chose whole cluster because it's a term that I don't want to say like it's in vogue for wine right now, but okay. um, whole cluster fermentation has been around for a long for millennia, basically throwing whole clusters of grapes in a vat mm-hmm. in hopes that they ferment. And through the ages, um, you know, there there was a maybe fifteen or so twenty years ago in Burgundy, it was not cool to use whole clusters because um, you're including part of the stem, like the actual peduncle, what attaches the like greater... I'm sorry. (laughs) That's the fucking word? Well... (laughs) You gotta be kidding me. You're attached... The bunch is attached to the greater... um, Vine? Yes, thank you, by the peduncle. But it's also... You can interchangeably call it the stem, but the stem is... Technically, I actually drew a picture so that you would okay. um, be able to to follow along with these terms. Anybody look up anatomy of a grape bunch if you want to follow along. But so we've got a grape bunch, and the grape bunch is attached to the entire bunch itself. The smaller little uh, parts that come out are mm-hmm. known as the stem, and then that's attached to the greater vine by the peduncle. And the peduncle and the stems need to be lignified, which means they need to be appropriately ripened, just like grapes need to be ripe. The stem needs to be ripe too in order to include it, but it needs to, um, you know, the texture needs to have changed. Some argue that the color needs to change. Some argue that that's not important um, to have it fully brown. But so um, decades ago, due to global warming not being such an issue, there were regions that didn't want to use this because it can cool down a ferment, and I'll get into more of that later, but decades ago it wasn't really a cool thing to do unnecessarily. And now, because um, of so many positive factors, there can be negative um, issues with whole cluster fermentation, but they're mainly, uh, for people that know how to do it, it's positive. So... Mm -hmm. Um, some people can include as little as like 0.3, 0.5% uh, whole cluster all the way up to 100% whole cluster fermentation. And their objective is to is, is multitudinous. Basically, you can be doing it to cool down a ferment because there's space when you're including whole bunches um, slash stems. Think of it spatially. There's more space for air to travel. So in fermentation, they can get pretty hot and furious. And if it gets above a certain threshold, you're going to risk either the fermentation shutting down, off flavors. There's a lot that can happen as a result of of that. Of it being too hot. Yep. So whole cluster fermentation keeps your ferment um, relatively cool, anywhere from one to three degrees cooler, Mm. um, which can make a big difference. Sure. Um, It also 
can produce like it's kind of hard to explain it without um, getting too technical, but many people will argue that the texture is more tannic, but in a way that's more refined than, say, if you were to just put it in oak for tannin or okay. or um, do like a punching down of the cap to keep to like mix up the skins with the rest of the must and the resulting wine, you're going to there's going to be that exchange of um, and tannin release from the skins and that can be very um, coarse and they can be very um, of a high level of tannin and so whole cluster fermentation if you're including some of the stems and you know you're not crushing the berries you're allowing for the tannin to possibly be more elegant you're also most people don't deny that whole cluster fermentation offers incredible complexity in the nose and the result on the palate, of course, but like floral, some people use the word like spice characters, like a spice box. Some people go into like a realm that's um, usually it's quite living, the objectives that you hear. They're, they're okay. never like, um, they, they tend to be quite flowery, okay. you know, no pun intended. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I brought this rendition because I really feel like with these two wines, you can taste the difference between, of course, one is virtually 100% whole cluster and one um, is not. Yeah. The argument against whole cluster is that if you don't know how to manage it, you can end up, especially if your stems aren't ripe, you can end up with more um, green tannins and greenness, Okay. Um, which... That's definitely um, a true statement. So uh, something to th something to think about. So can like you wouldn't do a whole cluster fermentation if you're making like champagne or something, right? I mean, are there grapes or wines or something types of grape products that <laughs> you can? Yeah, for sure. You um, would f you could do that with any of them. That's a great question. Yeah, you could do it with white wine. You could do it with um, you could do it with rosé, I guess. But your objective usually with rosé is you're um, extracting skin or color from your skins within hours, maybe a day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, two days maybe. Well, I guess that depends because then we've got orange slash we've got pink skinned varietals that basically look red because they've spent weeks on the skins, right? Yeah. So in that case. Definitely whole cluster can be employed for sure. Um, champagnes, I have heard of producers that do a whole cluster ferment. Um, I can't say I've ever tasted a champagne house that's done 100% whole cluster ferment and then they do one that's not. So you could taste the difference right. after all that time on the leaves and however much time in bottle before they release it. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yes and no would be okay. the answer to that question. Right. But so let's let's yeah, taste let's it. try it. Let's try it for we'll, sure. So this is the first stuff I'm going to finish off here, the non whole clustered. Correct, and and keep in mind, we talked about acid and tannin mm -hmm. last week. Mm -hmm. um, I was giving Emily a tasting checklist <laughs> yes. kind of thing to think about. Um, so notice how the tannins kind of. Actually, I'm going to do this. We'll pour about a half ounce of the one we just tasted because we hardly had anything left in our glass. We're small, small pours over here, which yes. I like. Um, so take a tiny sip and taste like what happens tannin acid-wise. Mm. 
There's really not a ton of tannin in this, I don't think. No, it's but there's it's a little acidy. Like I get a little clench to the for sure. bone. You wanna yeah. you want to do that? I do. And then here's the whole cluster. Now notice how that, you know, it smelled like cranberries and tart cherries and like really yep. pretty and easy drinking Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. Um, and then uh, it's all from the Shehalem Mountains, actually, to be more specific. Kay. Now smell this guy. You smell how it smells like more, for me, it's incense. There's yeah. more like a sandalwood quality, um, like... Yeah. Dr something like dried, something dried, but not in a way that's green. Like it smells like some hippie store you walk in to buy. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Like, like little, like not nag champa, but no, yeah, I totally like teddy that. bears made out of cat hair, and maybe not that, <laughs> but you know, like I, I want a t-shirt that yeah. says that. <laughs> now get on. Now All taste right. the palate. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Like the retro nasal mm -hmm. and the tannin. I feel like it doesn't seem as acidic though. Well, if the tannins, if it can go, if it can penetrate through that tannin, because yeah. I think this is quite a bit more tannic. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do notice that my mouth, my personally, my mouth salivates more with this wine. Um, uh, maybe from the tannin, but not from the acid. From the acid, yeah, but it because oh. the tannins are prevalent here. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that can divert attention away from sure, acid, you know, and sure. registering acid. Yeah. But I feel like these are noticeably different wines. But if you had one one month and one the other month, I don't know if it would be as noticeable if you're not having it side by side. Yeah, give me another sip of that other one, if that's okay. Yeah, that's the smart way to go. Yeah. Go back. It's definitely more herbal at the end, too. Yeah, like there's a tea quality, yeah, like yes, a Darjeeling yeah. tea for sure. Yeah. Um, another reason why people use, well, how about this? We've gone into whole cluster. Yeah. Let's let's handle, and then let's go back to whole cluster because there's more we can say for okay. sure. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Mm. I like them both quite a bit. Me being kind of... I'd say adverse to tannin, I would probably choose not the whole cluster. Okay. Doesn't mean I don't like it, though. And there there could be for different purposes, right? Like if you're just sipping wine while you're yeah. editing or while you're outside or at the bonfire, you know, the yep. non-whole cluster may be the way to go. But with food, mm -hmm. maybe you'd want something to oh, kind of sure. assist in the salvation process, Definitely. so whole cluster. Yep. yep. Um, yeah, super fun. Georg so Friedrich Handel. Handel. So Handel was such an interesting fella. Uh, I think in the Rameau episode, we talked about how 1685 was a really important year. Rameau was born in 1683, but Handel, Domenico Scarlatti, and Johann Sebastian Bach were all born in 1685. And they're three of the most brilliant Baroque composers of the era. Uh, Handel was German, but he ended up going to England when he was, I think, in his 20s, maybe? Pretty young, and he just decided to stay there. 
And so he kind of became adopted as a British composer, but he just happened to spend a lot of time in in London in particular. Why did you choose uh, Handel's Concerto Grosso, his opus six, number one in G major? Because it's wonderful. Uh, and here we're just going to, I know you said we'd save it, but here's a super brief opus lesson. Because opus six, that's a low number. Mm-hmm. And opus numbers are catalog numbers or, you know, numbers that are assigned when you get something published in music. Opus one, opus two, opus three. Um, but if, you know, hundreds of years later, virtually, uh, when people went through, not really hundreds of years, but decades later when people would go through Han- Handel's catalog and try and order everything chronologically, he's already written 300 and some tunes by the time we get to opus six, okay? So it's not like, it's not like this is early handle. It yeah. is. It is early handle, but just don't if for those of you who know of opus numbers, don't be misled by the fact that it's opus 6. This is he's still a pretty mature composer at this point. This is wonderful because it opens kind of slow, slowish, um, but there's just such beautiful talk between not even just the soloists and the orchestra, the fuller orchestra, but between the soloists themselves, between the violinists, they do this beautiful kind of dialogue, and then they include the full orchestra with it, and it's just to me just that's. I was just going to say that's what separates the men from the boys. You know, in 2019, we probably shouldn't say shit like that anymore. I don't know, but that's the phrase I'm getting at. The wheat from the chaff. How about that? Love it. Because this is just some beautiful writing. This is like somebody like pouring their heart into the beauty of this music. And they're genius. It's like. genius. Who the fuck cares that it's not called something like an ode to Jill Mott. You know, who cares that it's like Concerto Grosso, Opus 6, Number 1, HW, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, it doesn't matter. It's still That's how we really should all beautiful. talk to each other. specifically chose this one and there are others that handle wrote. There are so many so, others but this one's so good. They're they're all good but this one is so good. Sigh of happiness from Emily Reese over there. Yeah. <laughs> I just love how they go back and forth. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, Handel, yes. More of that. It's so good. <laughs> oh, God, I love it. Yeah, no, that's just wonderful. That's just wonderful. And I, now I feel so en- enriched in the fact that when I'm in my car yeah. and I'm hearing Concerto Grosso, mm-hmm. I'm going to be like, listen to that interplay. It's just so gorgeous. <laughs> so you know? good. So yep. I feel like that's for, for a, um, you're definitely not like the, the layman or the laywoman listening to yeah. classical, whereas I feel like I am. And when I listen to it, I definitely appreciate having a little bit more, I don't want to say structure to my listening, but yeah. When you recognize something and you're able to put it into some sort of quadrant, then mm-hmm. you can enjoy it more, yeah. which you know is what yeah. my profession's all about. So yeah. why not just do that with a lot of things? Um, well, but now, is this, as long as it's not people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you you know now, if you go to a concert or you just are like scrolling through and deciding what kind of music to listen to, and you stumble across the word concerto grosso, you can be like, "Ooh, I wonder what the soloists are going to be. Yep. Is it going to be?" Trumpets and a snare drum? No. You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, like, I do know what you mean. Yeah. I do That's know what I mean. So before we go on to fuging, yes. um, let's go back to Whole Cluster please. for a brief moment. Please, because please. a couple things to speak about. So what you'll notice too in these in the color. Um, do you notice? Do you mind pouring a little bit more of the whole cluster in my glass? Not at all. In this one here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just enough so we can look at compare the color to the two. Do you notice a difference in color? The whole cluster seems almost like maybe a little darker, a little bloodier. Interesting. Am I wrong again? No, you're definitely not. It does seem a little bit deeper. Yeah, deeper. Yep, for sure. Uh, More saturated, maybe, even though they're the same color. Less clear, though. You know what I mean? Like, not as easy to see through because of its darkness. (laughs) You're like, you're not right. (laughs) No, I just am trying to... Put that into my head and <laughs> this figure. This yours, I think. It's not. This is mine. Okay. 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 So, the, the reason I asked that question is because whole cluster fermentation. Um, some people employ it because it stabilizes color. Okay. So color in a red wine degrades as the wine is in the bottle, well, as it's in a tank or a oak barrel or anything, but especially when it goes into bottle, if you have a red wine and you open it right away when you buy it, it's probably going to be, you know, if it's like this, a Pinot Noir from 2017, it's going to have this like cherry or cranberry color to it. Mm -hmm. And if you open it in 20 years, it's going to look like kind of this tomato like brick red really? color, um, and it's gonna it's gonna lose saturation. It's gonna lose um, like the the brightness and yeah. that that primary color, right? Um, and it'll get lighter as time. So a cabernet, even a cabernet that's dark, will be really dark when you you know if it's a new vintage and you you buy it relatively fresh, mm-hmm. and in thirty years that same dark cabernet will be will look like maybe this Pinot Noir, but brick red, right? They lose color. And by doing whole cluster fermentation, there's evidence that you're stabilizing the color. So the color is going to fall out less rapidly than it would if it were, say, uh, a non-whole cluster ferment. Um, So that's one thing to mention. Another thing that I I particularly like in the world of, um, in natural wines, we think oxygen... 
in winemaking, most people would say around the world for conventional and industrial winemaking that oxygen is not good for wine. Okay. You don't want your wine to ox you know, to come in contact with oxygen because you're gonna, you know, it's gonna ruin the color, it's gonna ruin the primary aromatics, it's not gonna be as fruity, and it's just a detriment overall. Okay. But in the end, if it's a living thing, all living things need oxygen, <laughs> and we we sell wine as being this living agricultural product, so why is it any different? Yeah. And with a whole cluster ferment, you have obviously more just like that space that I was talking about, spatial relationship, to mm -hmm. be able to have mm -hmm. airflow to cool the ferment. You're also going to have, obviously, air flowing through yeah. finite amount, yeah. but um, a measurable amount of air, and therefore... You're introducing oxygen to a wine that, if it's made in a certain way, is going to be more stable in uh, contact with oxygen once you open it. It's okay. not going to be afraid of oxygen. Right. It's already been exposed. And maybe before we go on to fuging, um, if you are, you don't necessarily, this doesn't have to do with a native ferment or a natural indigenous yeast ferment, but when you have that spatial relationship for temperature and for oxygen, naturally your yeasts are going to have an easier time getting around in there. Mm -hmm. So people will argue that for a whole cluster ferment, it's a bit more steady as opposed to being, if it's a, if it's a ferment that's, you know, a complete crushed yeast stem and you've got a lot of liquid in, in the situation with a lot of crushed berries, mm -hmm. the yeasts don't have as easy of a time meandering around as okay. it were. Lastly, and officially, lastly, because this is exciting. So <laughs> when we talk about whole cluster fermentation, there is there can be elements of carbonic maceration. We've mentioned that in previous episodes wh where a berry is in the absence of oxygen, it has yet to be crushed, and it's experiencing an intracellular fermentation, yeah. which is you know the ability to give off these complex aromatics, etc. What happens when you have a whole cluster fermentation the juice on the bottom is starting to be released from these whole clusters because on top you've got weight from these whole clusters. Yep. What's happening? You've got berries that are under that are intact underneath the this this juice or perhaps wine. And some of these berries are fermenting within themselves, but they're fermenting at a slower rate. Okay. So when you pull let's whole cluster and if you bite those berries, yeah. they're still sweet. So what happens is they will prolong that ferment. So not only do you have cooler temperatures, but you mm -hmm. have a fermentation that is maybe close to being done or halfway through. And then you add this extra element of sugar once those are crushed, mm -hmm. sometimes foot trodden, sometimes not. But that will add an extra extra basically food for those yeasts. And a lot of winemakers will say a longer, slower ferment is better than a fast and furious ferment. Okay. So why? Just for all of those reasons, color and aromatics and Yes. And think of how many things are better. <laughs> I was gonna have a really bad analogy, but think <laughs> of how many things are better when it's like slow going, you know? You don't make best friends in five minutes, you know? You don't Usually, I don't know if you meet the partner of your life in five minutes, but you like a lot of things that take time. Think of Indian food. Yeah. Indian food. Is there any uh, more work as a result of doing a whole cluster fermentation? Because if you're going to filter your wine at the end anyway, you're going to filter it, right? So it wouldn't matter necessarily if you're tossing all that shit in there or not. Hopefully you're not filtering, but yeah, keep going. Is there any 
more work or more cost, depending on if they do it this way or if they take all the grapes off, mm-hmm. toss just the grapes in, or maybe some stems. You know what I mean? It's kind of it's twofold. That's a great question, and I think it would really depend on someone would have to measure that, and that'd be pretty hard to measure because some people will do a partial whole cluster, and let's say they will, you know, there's various ways you can do that. Like you can do a lasagna, like a layered effect where you're doing, mm-hmm. you're crushing grapes as they come into the winery, and that's all going into some sort of vat to ferment, and then you have a literally that's come from the vineyard. You have a like a bucket or a picking bin mm-hmm. of whole clusters and you throw, you know, you just layer them on, you throw them in as you want, or if they look really healthy and beautiful, you'll throw some in. Some people prefer to only have them on the top and all the mm-hmm. crushed stuff on the bottom. And so just that having to sort, mm-hmm. that's time, right? So yeah. time is money. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you're not putting them through a crusher to stemmer, yeah. that's time you're saving by not putting them on a sorting table yep. and not putting them, you know, into the crusher to stemmer to later to, that occupies that, right? So, yes, it takes time, but in the end, you're probably shoving during harvest. Something's probably going in the crusher to stemmer instead of that. So, okay. um, I would say yes and no. But in order to measure if it's less expensive or more expensive, that would be a. I couldn't measure that. I don't. Yeah, think. I was just curious what what other than you know, flavor, generally speaking, all the fucking things about other than all those things, mm-hmm. what is the virtue or the drawback of doing it that way from, you know, just a, I don't know, but fiscal standpoint or time standpoint. Yeah. Or just, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, time standpoint, it's really fun. It's really fun to go like, just toss those fuckers right in. Yep. You know? And well, everybody else is like doing their crushing, destemming, sorting thing, and you're mm-hmm. just sitting there with bunches and like fondling mm-hmm. bunch- bunches up into a big open vat. That's a very peaceful experience. I'm sure it is. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Uh, okay. Shall we fugue? Fugue me. All day. <laughs> all day. <laughs> yes. Fugue me all oh, day. Oh, man. I just looked over oh. and um, Emily looked like a. a kid in a candy store. No, fugues are badass and fugues are that awesome because of how difficult they are to execute correctly. And that that's just awesome. And it's it's like that is it's hard enough to do one and then to do one that makes you like forget you're even listening to a fugue or just it's just so satisfying and amazing. And you're like, "Yes, but I mean, it really could be like looking at a duck on the water, right? You're you're just like listening to this awesome fugue and it's great, but then you like look under the water and the duck is just like mm-hmm. with its little feet, you know, just going crazy. Yeah. Because that's what a fugue is. There's so much going on under the hood. And explain to me yeah. with the fugue because I was, you know, I've heard the term. Mm-hmm. I know I've heard dozens of fugues. Yeah. And as I've researched fugues. Yeah. I got like I was literally in the middle of the forest at night by myself and was like WTF <laughs> what happened and I feel like yeah. I my mind is it's kind of around it but mm-hmm. if you were to if someone says what the f is a fugue yep explain it in 3 sentences okay or less you hear a melody all by itself okay shortly after that you hear that melody answered
So you hear a melody, and then the melody right away gets answered. And then basically once we hear that melody and its answer, and what usually happens under the answer is uh, something called a counter statement, or you could think of it as a counter melody. And then that melody gets developed a bunch of times. hear what's called a false entry, we'll hear a little bit of that melody and think, oh, we're going to hear it again. Nope, nope, it stopped. Mm. You know, so then we'll hear one last big statement of that opening melody in the same key that it started in, and then we get to the end. And what happens in between all there can be 20 minutes, it can be five minutes, it can be a minute and a half. Jesus. Okay, so final entry. Yeah. Um, in, is that always in the tonic key? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Eyes, oh, yeah, eyes for sure. Eyes biggest quarters. Yeah. <laughs> biggest yeah. quarters. So okay. I'm going to show her. Um, well, I'll show you a couple different ones. I can show you one that I analyzed for school. I was going to say for work. Fugues. This is, again, a, a Baroque thing. It's it, fugue type pieces were around before that, but the actual um, technique of a fugue, ooh, this is important. A fugue, we wouldn't call it a form, we would call it a compositional technique. Just so you know, that's important. Just like mirroring whole cluster technique. <laughs> Love it. Okay. It's a technique, not okay. a form. Okay. Um, so you can see how, where was it? Is this all marked up? Yeah. Okay, uh, which one is this? Two, two from Book the Wall one. What key are we in? C minor. Oh, this is C minor one. Uh, oh, so Fugue 2. Okay. Um, now, here's the thing about that. So you have the statement and you have the answer. Underneath that very first answer is almost always the counterstatement, which has really specific rules as well. Uh, blah, da, dee, blah. Uh, the opening we'll have statement. A whole, we'll have a whole episode on fugues. We probably. should do a whole fugue episode at some point. Um, the, the statement has pretty uh, deliberate uh, tasks. It has to establish a key right off the bat so that you know what the hell's going on and so that when it's answered, all that tonality makes sense. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not just like, hey, let's write this melody. That melody has to be able to be transposed and has to be able to work in all different kinds of ways. And melodies don't always do that. That's not you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so when you. Oh, go ahead. No, no. What were you gonna say? So you chose well-tempered clavier without batting an eye. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. So, I you know I just was saying that the fugue was something that a lot of broke composers, baroque composers, baroque uh, composers worked on. <laughs> I just wanted you to say it again. <laughs> baroque composers. They they did it to get good at counterpoint, which is a compositional technique that ruled the Baroque era and t tonal music in general. Uh, and a fugue was a really good way to 
try and follow rules and and also, as I mentioned, they're so difficult that they were a really good way to prove that you knew what you were doing. And you had a handle on uh, counterpoint and, and composition. Um, but as far as why I chose the well-tempered clavier so quickly, the well-tempered clavier, uh, there are two books that Bach wrote called the well-tempered clavier. One is, of course, book one. The other is book two. Book one was like 1720s, maybe. Book two was 1740s, uh, somewhere around there. Um, each book uh, goes through all 24 major and minor keys in order. So there's a C major prelude, a C major fugue, a C minor prelude, a C minor fugue, a C sharp major prelude, a C sharp minor fugue, or C-sharp major fugue, C-sharp minor prelude, C-sharp minor fugue, D major, D minor, on and on, all the way up to B major, B minor. All the way up to God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all the way up, ding, I'm Bach. <laughs> so uh, he did that twice, and he said in in the books that, you know, they're to be used for, you know, teaching, um, for both amateurs and professionals, you know, people who really have a handle on counterpoint. They're hard to play. I think all Bach is hard. I, well, just piano's hard to play. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of independent. Your fingers are all doing different things, and it's just like, what the hell? Uh, so so the fact that Bach wrote, you know, 48 fugues, right, just in this, right? Because he wrote organ, toccata, and fugue, prelude, and fugue. I mean, he wrote all kinds of fugues all over the place. <laughs> so it's this. these aren't obviously the only fugues he wrote, but um, they're just... So uh, they're quite well known. A lot of them are, um, and they're short, and they're pretty easy to wrap your head around, even as complex as some of them are. So, do you mind as you're as we're listening to it? Do you mind yeah. pointing out to nope. our not at all our steadfast listeners? Not at all. You know when the exposition sure f- you know is finalized and the development begins. Sure, I will say. Uh, just a couple. Of, I really do want to read these quotes that I sent you because I think they're both really uh, great. Um, so, a cu- couple of really great counterpoint books. One is really quite a famous counterpoint book written by a composer named Kent Kennan, who actually wrote a really great trumpet concerto as well. Um, but he says in his counterpoint book. Uh, Traditional fugal procedure is bound by certain restrictions in some respects, yet it is remarkably free in others. And that really is a really good way to describe a fugue because there are very specific things that you have to do. But like I was saying earlier, you could do that in a minute and a half or two minutes, or you could take 10 minutes to do that. Who was the first person to write a fugue or to put down these rules? (sighs) Actually, I think it might have been Fuchs. In his counterpoint book, he started perhaps talking about rules. Um, Fuchs was a, a Baroque fella who wrote a um, theoretical counterpoint book called Gratis uh, Ad Parnassum. And that was like the book that everybody studied, you know, to learn counterpoint. Mm-hmm. The other quote I think that's really cool before we move on to listening from Oren, uh, uh, Harold Owen um, and it's going to take me a minute to find this one. As, you're, as you're looking for that, I feel like you would yeah. love to taste. So it's hard to like taste out of your own glass yeah. and then pour and then you swirl. And then, so yep. taste. Okay. And then 
you know, give it maybe 10 seconds and okay. then taste. Okay. This is the whole cluster. Correct. Okay. See, there I got the acid much more than I did the first time I tasted it. This one, the non, the normal one, I don't know what you call it. The non-whole cluster? The non-whole cluster is almost like if you went to two parties in one night, the whole cluster one would be way more fun. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Not that the non-whole cluster wouldn't be fun. You'd have a good time. I, and I, I look at them as like the a very easy way for me to get my head around it or, and to explain it would be whole cluster is like a chocolate chip cookie that has salt, you yeah. know, or sea salt on the top or salt in the recipe. Mm -hmm. And then the regular Pinot Noir, the non-whole cluster is like someone forgot the salt. Yes. Is it still an okay cookie? Definitely. Sure. But yeah. does it have like a zing, a brightness, and winemakers will almost unanimously say there's a freshness mm. that they can't quantify with whole cluster fermentation, but it just tastes like more vibrant. Yes. And when I tasted the non-whole cluster, even though it's a delicious wine, the yes. first words that came to my head was, oh, it's kind of dumb. You know, like it's got this like, <laughs> like blomp, like blomp. It doesn't have this like, yeah. you know, that the whole cluster has. So yeah. as, as you're preparing for your no. quote delivery. That's wonderful. I, it's right. I'm so grateful that I got to taste those back to back in that manner because it was different. And and that's the thing. Like I said earlier, you know, when I did when I first tasted the whole cluster, and I thought it's not as acidy. That was wrong. I mean, I just I still had that acidy stuff going on from the non whole cluster that kind of distracted me from the acidity of the whole cluster. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. So. Uh, Harold Owen in his counterpoint book, which is called Modal and Tonal Counterpoint, by the way. So we're talking about the modes in this one as well. Uh, he says, Fugue represents the highest and noblest in the art of polyphonic composition. Noblest and highest in the art of polyphonic composition. That's saying a lot. And, and Emily's reading the Bible of <laughs> the Bible of, of well, classical I, music, right? I'm, here. Just, I'm just saying that it is it is a fact universally embraced by people who understand a fugue that it's really a difficult thing to do. And people who excel at it like Bach did. Um, you know, I mean, look, the well-tempered clavier uh, was studied by uh, Joseph Haydn. It was studied and practiced by Mozart. It was studied and practiced by Beethoven. You know, people weren't out playing concerts of Bach, Bach's music when Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven were alive. Nobody was playing mm -hmm. that stuff in concert. Uh, you know, that didn't come till the 1800s when Mendelssohn revived Bach's music to be heard publicly. Mm -hmm. People that whole time, that whole time, they weren't listening to Bach out in public, but all the composers were studying him because he was that. Well, I mean, I'm just getting all goosebumpy thinking about Bach because it's just, I mean, it's just not, but so, um, it's just not right. Is anybody composing, like how many people are composing fugues nowadays, modern nowadays? composers? Like modern composers? Are they like fuguing? For fun? <laughs> are they fuguing? I don't know how many fugues are happening these days. I mean, I think, you know, as a composer, if you're studying composition in a college, you're going to have to write a fugue or two. Mm -hmm. Whether you're writing fugues when you get out of school is a whole other question. Yeah. I think, you know, again, this wasn't really considered a form, right? It was considered a technique. It's a compositional technique and tool 
to get adept at, you know, contrapuntal writing yeah. and, you know, stuff like that. So, Well, shall we? All this buildup. Let's just listen to it. Let's do it's it. It's going to go by so fast, too. That's the most amazing <laughs> what thing. What is it, a minute 20 or something, something like that? Something like that. So you chose... I'm going to get this out, though. The G minor one, because it's in here, too, which is helpful. You chose the number 16 in G minor. From book one. From book one, thank you. Of the well-tempered clavier. So, well, there's so many more things to say, but basically, you're going to hear, um, you're going to hear this statement. Uh, I wish I want to hear what note it is, though, so I can, because I don't have perfect pitch. Who did I send you? Oh, Maurizio Pollini. Okay, so this is good because it's slow. That's one of the things that I reasons I chose this. Um, not G. Oh yeah, G minor. You think that's a D? Isn't G minor? Yeah, but it starts on a D. Okay. Do, 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 do. Oh, got you. How did you? I don't uh-huh. know. I mean, I could have guessed, but I don't do, know if I would have gotten it. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you okay. asked. You asked. I did. I thought I was going to F it up. You did not. Nailed it. So you're gonna hear That's the melody. That's the whole melody right there. The answer does not start on the same note, but and then it goes on and on, right? So, there's your statement and your answer. Okay, tell us when the development's coming in. I was just going to say that uh, the last piece that Bach was working on uh, when he died was called The Art of the Fugue, and he didn't even specify what instrument it was supposed to be for, so there's all this debate whether it was for organ or string quartet or what. Because hmm. uh, he was a very talented organist. I think he played violin too. Um, but. Uh, he never finished it, and basically it takes the same subject, the same melody, and inverts it or twists it around throughout this series of fugues, and uh, the unfinished part was a big giant quadruple fugue, so four different statements with four separate answers, four separate counter melodies or counter subjects, all combining to one, basically. Um, but there's also uh, a really difficult fugue work in his piece, The Musical Offering. Uh, as far as Beethoven goes, Beethoven, another really quite insanely talented fugal fugue writer, 
uh, lots of fugal parts in his symphonies, but also in his um, as it Opus 106 uh, piano sonata, the Hammer Clavier is the nickname of that. And that went un- unperformed forever because, first of all, it's like an hour long for a piano sonata. That's that's a lot of work for one pianist playing Beethoven. Wow. Um, but the last movement is a big, giant, hard, difficult, complicated fugue. Um, his final string quartet, Beethoven's final string quartet, has a grossa fugue at the end, giant fugue at the last the last movement that is sometimes played separately. Um, anyway, to fugues and concerti grossi and whole cluster fermentation, delicious wine, scores and pours. Scores and pours. Emily Reese. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. learned about fugues we learned a little bit about counterpoint and uh, well-tempered clavier uh, we learned about uh, baroque come come can't read my handwriting compose composiums composing but most importantly we learned about fuchs or fuchs fuchs Fuchs? Uh, yeah, Fuchs. You. <laughs>